the Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Hey, Rush, now, go to Costa Rica. Coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Listeners do support the Peter B. Collins Show. Today I want to single out Dan Blick, David Pulson, and Christopher Welsh. They are voluntary monthly subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show. If you'd like to help, go to my website, peterbcollins.com. Click on You Can Help, and our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. This is Tell a Friend Month here at the PBC Show. So when you're finished listening to this podcast, I encourage you to email at least 10 of your friends and recommend the show with a link to iTunes or peterbcollins.com. And later in the program, we'll meet Jonathan Show, Show with an E. He has been to Cuba more than 80 times in the last 12 years, and he's written a book of reflections on that called Cuba Rising. And we'll talk a lot about Cuba and the failed U.S. policy that has kept the Castro brothers in power uh, through 10 presidential terms, uh, 10 different presidents, actually, and uh, 51 years. Right now, we're joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's a medical doctor based in the Baltimore area, and she's been on the front lines of the battle for real health care reform in this country. And she even uh, paid a price for it. Max Baucus had her arrested when uh, she demanded single payer at one of his hearings last summer. And she's an unindicted co-conspirator with uh, Kevin Zeese, a regular contributor to our program. Dr. Flowers, nice to talk with you again. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Now, as we are speaking, uh, it's just been a few hours since President Obama uh, signed the uh, House-passed version of the Senate bill, and there's still a little more work to be done in the reconciliation process and there could be some amendments that require further House approval. But uh, more or less, uh, Obama is claiming victory, saying that he has achieved this massive uh, shift. And while it is a big bill, both in terms of the content and the uh, price tag, it pales in comparison to the blank checks that we uh, blithely write uh, for wars in uh, exotic places around the world. And in my view... It uh, just nibbles around the edges. It's a modest health insurance reform that favors the industry over consumers. It doesn't really address uh, critical issues of cost containment, with one exception. And uh, I'd like to hear your take on whether this entire process of over a year and the political capital that it took was worth it. Um, I certainly share your view of this legislation. Um, I think it was a hugely squandered opportunity. Uh, what we saw was the president's ability to choose a path and market that path and control the, the 
you know, how that proceeded. And so he got exactly what he wanted out of this legislation. But it was an opportunity that I think most of the American people wanted to have a debate about what was best for our country. And that's not what happened. So we have further privatization of our health care, which takes us in the wrong direction. For example, some of the early uh, triggers of this legislation are, are nominally good things. Uh, the, it ends the uh, lifetime cap that they can place on your coverage, and it ends, uh, at least ostensibly, cancellation of policies from people whose only uh, fault is that they are sick, and it prohibits insurers from uh, denying coverage to children because of pre-existing conditions. But uh, when you really look at the big picture... There is no effort to restrain even the cost of health insurance, much less the cost of the underlying care that's covered by that insurance. And this opens the door to further exploitation by the insurance companies who say, hey, uh, I can't turn you down for pre-existing conditions, but I can sure jack up your rates to compensate for that. Exactly. And, you know, whether we actually see that these regulations of the insurance industry um, take effect or not, you know, the insurance industry is very good at gaming the whole process and still getting around these regulations. So this all remains to be seen. Um, But, you know, in the meantime, you know, much of this doesn't kick in until, you know, four years from now. And even then, it's just providing people with health insurance, which we know doesn't protect people from financial ruin or allow them to actually, you know, guarantee them that they can get the care that they need. Um, It's kind of the same thing that we've been seeing play out at the state level over and over again where, you know, there's a few good things, but fundamentally the reform is flawed and so ultimately it's going to fail. And we urge people to stop compromising for these few good things, but, you know, demanding more. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's fair to say that it could have been worse, and uh, the only, uh, you know, solace for me in this is that uh, I didn't want to see the Republicans win through their obstructionist tactics, and the uh, all of these phony, angry, teabag-type people who have been driven by uh, these industry groups, including Dick Armies, uh, Freedom Works, and uh, the uh, Americans for Prosperity— but uh, there's little value. It, it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory in, in that sense that, uh, you know, the, the slightly better forces defeated the really evil forces. But the American people don't really get that much out of this. Right. Right. And, you know, if we want to actually uh, create a health system in this country that improves health care and you know, is a real health system, um, we're going to have to to have a battle. I mean, there's just no other way around it. So, um, you know, we're just putting, we're just delaying that, really. And, and so what we're telling people is, let's, um, you know, let's go ahead and take on that battle, which is the private industry that's profiting off of this current situation, and let's organize and educate and, and uh, go for the whole thing. So where do we go from here? Do you believe as, uh, and I'm not demonizing Dennis Kucinich, but the congressman, uh, voted for this after a lot of wrangling, and he, you know, he had a decent explanation for it. But he made the case that this is at least a, a first step. But I would argue that it's a huge step in the wrong direction, mainly because it continues to include the for-profit health companies, uh, health insurance companies, which are the biggest source of the 
uh, the profit taking and the cost uh, escalation that continues year after year. So is this something we can build on or do we need to be moving in that very different direction saying it is single payer that is the only real resolution to these uh, array of health care issues? Well, we don't see how this particular legislation can actually be tweaked or changed into something more positive because it is a purely, um, well, despite the expansion of Medicaid, the rest of it is a, you know, a private insurance uh, funded health care. So, um, you know, Congressman Kucinich did try to make it very clear that he still opposed the legislation, that he still thought it wasn't what he wanted to see, but he was put, unfortunately, in a position where he really didn't have a choice, um, and at least that's what he believed at the time. We were with him last week when he had, you know, was going through that process. But um, what we're saying is we do need to introduce legislation that creates a publicly funded health system, and that's what we should be educating and mobilizing around and pushing for. Well, here in California, uh, you know, we have tried several times, and now both candidates, both leading candidates for governor in this fall's uh, election, uh, say that they wouldn't support it. Uh, Meg Whitman wouldn't even think about it. And Jerry Brown, uh, who is trying to capture the middle of the road right now as a candidate, has said that uh, he doesn't see how California can afford it. And secondarily, he said that he wouldn't raise taxes without a vote of the people. And so I don't see, and, and certainly I'm not familiar with all the other states that may be trying to attempt a state-level single-payer plan, but did we get the language uh, in the bill that Kucinich and Sanders, uh, Senator Sanders of Vermont, were promoting to permit uh, states to adopt single-payer plans in the future? Unfortunately, we didn't get that language. As far as the Kucinich Amendment, which actually passed out of committee and would have granted something called an ERISA waiver right. that states need, that was not included in the final legislation. Senator Sanders had introduced an excellent amendment that would have really allowed states, it would have given states money even to set up single-payer systems. That was voted down in committee. The best he could do was to get language in the bill allowing states to opt out of the exchange and create their own system beginning in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so currently this legislation at the federal level prohibits states from enacting reform until 2017. I think clearly what we've learned over this year is that we can't leave this up to Congress and the White House to do this job. Political feasibility is determined by the people because we have the votes. And so this is why it's important that we educate and organize to create strong voting blocks which then will drive that political will. This is what it, it's going to take a social movement, much like we've seen in the past in this country. And, and the unfortunate thing is that we, we have seen that time and time again, uh, progressives are wedged in, uh, either taken for granted or just sat upon uh, to accommodate the pro-business center of the Democratic Party, uh, and in particular, the more conservative Democratic or nominal Democratic members of the United States Senate. And so, you know, as we saw this process where the Obama White House uh, wanted to deep six single payer from the beginning, wouldn't invite Conyers. He had to beg to attend that meeting. Uh, you and others stood up for single payer along the way and uh, put yourselves on the line. And I will always be grateful to you for that, Dr. Flowers. But we see that. 
even the the anti-abortion uh, hardliners in the Democratic Party, led by Stupak, <clears throat> and and that's a small group. It's uh, less than a dozen, but he tried to inflate uh, his influence uh, as much as he could. But uh, y- you know, Democrats will not hold the line. Uh, even on issues that they consider to be principal. And we see the Republicans willing to stay in lockstep uh, and spout all this bullshit about a government takeover and socialism and Leninism and Trotskyism. I mean, it's bizarre (laughs) and uh, offensive the way they, they marshaled their forces. But in the end, they deliver political unity even when they're all marching off the cliff together. And it's hard to uh, come up with a scenario where politically you could get Democrats to stand firm for single payer uh, and and really brush off uh, the political pressure that we saw uh, virtually every progressive knuckle under to in the last week. Well, we've seen this, you know, over and over again for years that, you know, the people who are progressive um, are willing to compromise because they are afraid of, you know, this, this whole bill actually was passed not because it, it merited being passed, but because people were told if it doesn't pass, Obama's going to lose in 2012, the Democrats are going to lose their majority in 2010, and so now this is all about saving the party. When the party actually completely let us down. They didn't stand up for our principles. And so this is why it needs to be an independent movement. And it's going to have to come from the grassroots level. We need an informed electorate, uh, which we don't currently have, people that are not able to be swayed by the propaganda that they hear coming out of the mainstream media. Yeah. Um, and and would you... Uh, I, I don't want to impose my sense of vindictiveness on you, Dr. Flowers, but... Uh, Rahm Emanuel really seems to be the key player who time and time again looked for uh, a, you know, a, 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 a really just a symbolic victory in this effort, a political victory. But he didn't care uh, what was really in the bill. He cut deals with pharma and with big insurance companies uh, that are not in the best interests of the American people. And and in my view, are similar to the the past. Well, the, the the you know the same deal is in place that we don't negotiate pharmaceutical prices and we ban the importation from Canada or other nations that enjoy lower prices. So, would you share my view that Rahm Emanuel is a real problem uh, in this whole process? Certainly, um, yeah. This was you know driven. This was a um, you know we looked back on the year and we really thought much as political theater. Um, everything was very tightly scripted. The messaging was very tight. It definitely came down from the administration. Um, the progressive Democrats were told to get in line, and they did get in line. Um, it was completely based on backroom deals with the industry because they weren't willing to take that industry on. And, yeah, you're right. This wasn't really about creating a health system that improved our health. It was about passing something with the word health in it. And it's a huge disappointment, but it really tells us what we need to do. Yeah. So where are you directing your efforts going forward here, Doctor? We are uh, directing them at what I said, organizing. Um, We've been doing some leadership trainings. Um, We're increasing the number of groups that are becoming active and trying to give them the resources 
that they need in terms of uh, website help and database help and uh, information. And we're hoping to use that model across the country. Uh, I urge people to go to the website healthcare-now.org and see if there's a group near you. Um, if not, you can, they'll help you form your own. And then assisting the states to try to break through some states, you know, at that level. But really, um, we need to have a strong national movement so that either way, if we break through at the state level or not, that we can keep pushing for a national solution. And personally, have you had enough, or are you going to stay in the fight? Oh, I'm definitely in the fight. Um, no, I, I'm really optimistic just based on the enthusiasm and the energy that we continue to see. We were very worried towards the end of last year that people would get tired of this process. Um, but instead, we saw more and more people kind of seeing the light and seeing that you know this wasn't going to be easy and, and needing to get involved, and that's just continued. I'm still running around like crazy um you're on your way to a you're on your way to a on your way to a speech right now is that right that's correct yeah i did pull over just to be be safe but um yeah um and so that's fantastic and let's keep that energy up and i hope to be traveling with the mattis hell doctors this fall through california well please 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 look us up in san francisco if uh, you're passing through i'd love to meet you and talk with you again great all right, Dr. Thank Flowers, so well, thank you for your comments, and thank you for all the energy that you put into this battle over the last year. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that's Dr. Margaret Flowers. And uh, if you don't recall, she was one of the people who was uh, thrown out of a Max Baucus Senate hearing last summer. Uh, Kevin Zeese, who is an activist who's been on this program several times, uh, was uh, a partner in that crime. And uh, they were there speaking for me, speaking for many of us, and uh, so I I have a special uh, sense of, uh, well, gratitude to them. I want to take a moment here to refer you to the work of uh, Jane Hampshire at FireDogLake.com, because um, I've known about this blog and site for a long time, and Jane has distinguished herself in, in many ways, but none uh, as singular as the effort on health care reform and properly covering it. And she is a tireless advocate for true health reform, for a single-payer approach. And uh, she did a lot of vote counts, what they call whipping. And uh, her, her team there at Fire Dog Lake deserves a, a great deal of credit for their contribution to what I consider to be uh, a modest achievement, uh, a political success, but a policy failure in uh, the bill that uh, President Obama signed with Flourish. And I've been getting emails from him and his staff uh, almost hourly uh, trying to share this with me, <laughs> saying that I can sign on to the bill. And uh, some of my friends, who I regard as politically naive, have been up there on Facebook uh, saying, yeah, I signed on to the bill, too. And as I mentioned in a prediction that I posted in a recent podcast, my biggest concern here, politically, is that the coverage mandates and the fines, if you don't get coverage, that will be collected by the IRS, will be a huge uh, source of catnip for the Tea Party, Tea Bag protest movement. And while it's not clear that the calls that are coming scripted from Republicans right now 
to repeal this bill will get them anywhere. They certainly see an opportunity politically. The biggest vulnerability in the bill is this mandate for coverage. And if you recall, as a candidate, one of the few differences between Obama and Clinton over health reform was about mandates. And Obama said he was against them. And, you know, I I know the case can be made that I'm required to have car insurance to operate an automobile. And I don't particularly find the mandate to be unconstitutional. That, of course, is easy for me. I'm not a lawyer. But politically, I think this is a cudgel that will be swung at Democrats as early as uh, the primaries and this fall. And uh, I'd love to be wrong. But I think that populist, uh, populist propagandists and those who, you know, try to twist and manipulate will be successful in using this against Democrats. But I want to take a moment here to just uh, kind of jog through a table that Jane Hampshire published at Fire Dog Lake. And I'll put the link up to this in the uh, show information file at peterbcollins.com. And assuming that it, it lives on on their servers, uh, you can revisit this at your convenience. But it's a simple construction of myth versus truth. And I want to run through these 18 myths and briefly summarize the truth for you so you have an understanding of why this package comes up so far short of what many of us uh, campaigned for, supported Obama for, and uh, fought for in the past year. The number one myth, this is a universal health care bill. Well, it's neither uh, universal nor universal health insurance. Uh, The total uninsured in 2019 uh, was projected to be $54 without this bill, and uh, the total uninsured with the Senate bill is $24 So there is a reduction there, and I don't want to sneeze at that. 30 million people covered. But under what circumstances and how crippling will the costs be? Number two myth, insurance companies hate this bill. Well, Fire Dog Lake points out this bill is almost identical to the plan written by AHIP, the Insurance Company Trade Association, in 2009. Number three myth, the bill will significantly bring down insurance premiums for most Americans. Well, the only part of that, and I briefly alluded, it, alluded to it uh, a few minutes ago in introducing the subject here, I am curious about the mechanism in the Senate bill that limits insurance companies to taking a profit of no more than 20%. And the way it's worded is that they have to spend 80 to 85% <clears throat> of premium revenue on health care. And theoretically, that limits their margin of profit to 15 to 20 percent and uh, would limit the uh, massive and uh, obscene executive compensation that we see that's endemic in that industry. But uh, there's no real cost control, and I haven't seen what the mechanism is for enforcing these rules on insurance carriers because, as you probably know, the regulation of health insurance is mostly accomplished at the state level. So I am not aware of a federal insurance entity that can monitor these costs and actually uh, force the companies to live within this, uh, this range of 15 to 20 percent. Uh, 
So I, again, uh, await further information on that before I make some final uh, opinion about it. But uh, that, to me, is the only element that I see that really could uh, control cost increases, and it certainly would not bring them down. So the president uh, argued over the course of this, uh, this uh, legislative campaign that uh, he, he thought that uh, the bills would bring the uh, average family's premium down by $2,500 a year. And uh, I don't buy that. So Fire Dog Lake shows, for example, uh, annual premiums uh, projected for 2016 without the bill or with it. And uh, what it shows is that uh, with the bill, there are modest uh, savings uh, in the range of uh, hundreds of dollars per year. So, for example, for a small group market, a single policy, uh, no change. The cost would be about $7,800 projected for 2016. Uh, for a family, the coverage would be reduced from 19300 to 19200 Oh, great. Um, so there really doesn't appear to be much in the way of either cost control um, or limits on the rate of increase permitted per year, much less the idea that this is actually going to reduce premium costs for uh, most American families. Myth number four, the bill will make health care affordable for middle-class Americans. Well, they counter, the bill will impose a financial hardship on middle-class Americans who will be forced to buy a product that they can't afford to use. And uh, in most states, despite this talk of an exchange, many people will have only one company, maybe two, to choose from. And that's not real competition. That is a license to steal from people who are concerned about their health, present or future. Myth number five. The plan is similar to Massachusetts, which makes health care affordable. Well, it says many Massachusetts residents forego health care because they can't afford it. And that is the number one driver of people who are uninsured. It's not because they want to take a chance and hope to be bankrupted. It's because they can't afford it. Myth number six, the bill will uh, provide health care to 31 million people currently uninsured. The response here? This bill will mandate that millions of people who are currently uninsured must purchase insurance from private companies where the IRS will collect up to 2% of their annual income and penalties. Some will be assisted with government subsidies. Well, that part is true. Number seven myth, you can keep the insurance you have if you like it. Well, the excise tax, that's the so-called tax on Cadillac plans, will result in, in employers switching to uh, plans with uh, lower costs and higher co-pays. Number eight, the excise tax will encourage employers to reduce the scope of health care benefits, and they'll pass the savings on to employees in the form of higher wages. <laughs> Repeat after me. Bullshit. Um, one of the things that is curious, too, by the way, that uh, in the first phase of this bill, the John Boehner tan tax kicks in. And I just find this amusing because I don't own a tanning parlor. A 10% sales tax, a federal 10% sales tax on indoor tanning parlors? Huh. Uh, Boehner will want to extend that to nude beaches pretty soon. We better watch out. Uh, myth number nine, the bill employs nearly every cost control idea available to bring down costs. Oh, man. That's a big lie. 
And as Fire Dog Lake points out, it doesn't include a public option, doesn't include the Medicare buy-in, doesn't include drug reimportation, doesn't include drug price renegotiation, and uh, doesn't shorten the pathway to generic biologics. And uh, those uh, each each item there amounts to billions of dollars in cost control not included in this bill. Myth number 10, the bill will require big companies like Walmart to provide insurance for their employees. Well, the bill was written so the most Walmart employees will qualify for subsidies. <laughs> That's what they've been doing at the local level. Underpaying people, keeping their hours uh, under the uh, threshold so that they qualify for state-based Medicaid programs. Myth 11, the bill bends the cost curve on health care. Response, the bill ignored proven ways to cut health care costs and still leaves 24 million people uninsured while slightly raising total annual costs by $234 million. And uh, you don't have to be a right-wing critic to know that in order to say that this bill is paid for and in order to say that it will reduce the deficit, they've played incredible games with the numbers. And you can see on the face of it that they start collecting taxes this year, but the benefits don't start to roll out for several years. 2014 is when it starts to uh, get serious. And what that means is, sure, you look at the 10-year window, but you don't have full implementation both on the revenue and spending side for four years of that 10-year period. So it's a you know phony approach to fuzzy math. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that's <clears throat> how things are sold and passed in Washington, but that doesn't mean I have to believe it. Myth number 12, the bill will provide immediate access to insurance for Americans who are uninsured because of a pre-existing condition. Well, the response here, access to the high-risk pool is limited and the pool is underfunded. And that is true. It will cover few people and will run out of money in a year or two. I believe the number I saw is that for California, the high-risk pool would provide this coverage for less than 8,000 people. And we are a state of 33-plus million. That's, <laughs> it's meaningless. It'll help a few people, and I'm happy those people will get help. But it is not meaningful across a huge population like ours. Myth number 13, the bill prohibits dropping people in individual plans from coverage when they get sick. Problem? And the response here from Fire Dog Lake, the bill doesn't empower a regulatory body to keep people from dropped from being dropped when they're sick. Yeah, it's on the insurance industry honor system. And they've been so honorable in the past. Certainly, we can trust them. Almost like the self-regulation on Wall Street, wouldn't you say? Myth 14, the bill ensures consumers have access to an effective internal and external appeals process to challenge new insurance plan decisions. Well, the internal appeals process is in the hands of the insurance companies themselves. The external one varies state by state. And I'll try not to make a joke about Mississippi here, but be careful what state you live in when it comes to these kinds of appeals. Myth number 15, the bill will stop insurance companies from hiking rates 30 to 40 percent per year. Nah, that's enough said. Uh, number 16, when the bill passes, people will begin receiving benefits immediately. 
Well, we covered that. Most of it doesn't kick in until 2014. 17. Myth 17, the bill creates a pathway for single payer. Not really. As you heard Dr. Flowers say, Sanders and Kucinich tried very hard. But due to technical issues, this so-called pathway for single payer is an illusion. And finally, myth number 18, the bill will end medical bankruptcy and provide all Americans with peace of mind. Sorry. Another balloon to be punctured. Most people with medical bankruptcies already have insurance. Out-of-pocket expenses will continue to be a burden on the middle class. In 2009, a million and a half Americans declared bankruptcy. 62% were medically related. And of those 62%, three-quarters had health insurance already. So, net-net, I'm going to move forward. I've kind of had enough of this whole health care debate game. It was an ugly process. The insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, and their minions have produced this whole mob mentality that permeates American politics today. And we saw it in the ugly and obscene language that conservative protesters hurled at members of Congress during the weekend session where this bill was finally passed. And it's now become an accepted part of the wallpaper that Americans are angry, voters are angry. And when that anger is characterized, it's all coming from the right. Well, let me tell you something. There are a lot of angry liberals in this country And we don't go out there and, you know, make cute little signs that suggest we're going to take our guns to enforce our views. In fact, maybe we're too passive all the way around. But the phony anger ginned up by the corporate interests and the Republicans desperate to block even this pile of crap shows you what we're up against and how poorly the Democrats have operated in this environment. If you strip off the labels and you strip away your preference for policy positions and just look at who plays this game better, it's impossible to conclude that it's the Democrats. Either as the majority party that controls both houses in the White House or when they were in the wilderness as the Republicans are today. And I'm sorry to say that betting on Democrats, if your life depends on it, if your health depends on it, if your financial security depends on it, that's a bad bet, my friends. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer. That's the Organic Wine Company. 
And this is our Tell a Friend Month. I am tasking you as Vice President of Marketing in your area. When you're finished listening to this podcast, just get on your email machine and send out a note to 10 or 50 people. And send them to link the link to PeterBCollins.com with your recommendation. All right? Thank you. And now we are going to expend the entire Peter B. Collins Show travel budget with a little trip to Cuba. Jonathan show is a Cuba file. And maybe they have a file on him in Cuba, too. It's uh, the subject of a new book called Cuba Rising, an American Insider's Perspective. And John Show has just returned from his latest trip to the island in the Caribbean. And uh, you've been there more than 80 times in the last 12 years. Is that right, John? That's correct, Peter. It's a journey well worth the time and effort involved. Well, and you still have to go a roundabout way. You can't go from Miami to Havana, even though it's, what, a, a... half-hour flight, you've got to go from Mexico City or uh, from Caracas. What's your favorite route into Cuba from the United States? Uh, Well, actually, there's lots of alternatives. Uh, One can enter Cuba from Mexico or the Bahamas, Grand Cayman, other places. But uh, happily, over the years, I've discovered uh, the means to enter the country legally from both the U.S. and the Cuban point of view. And so I am free of the the perils of trying to slide in under the radar. Uh huh. But you didn't answer my question. What's your favorite way? <laughs> uh, favorite rate, favorite way is to go legally right over Miami. There are uh, several flights a day. I would say ninety percent occupied by Cuban American expatriates who are permitted to go back to Havana for visits. Oh, okay. And uh, when did that ease? Because uh, I know Global Exchange takes uh, travel tours. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues is going to uh, on a trip to Havana with Global Exchange next week. And they go through Mexico City, or at least they used to. Yeah, it still remains uh, a more convenient route, especially from the West Coast. Uh, If one goes over Miami, the flights generally leave in the morning, and it's difficult to arrive in time to catch those and... uh, necessitates a night in Miami. But the uh, the provisions changed over the years. They, they were on during the Carter era and then went off under uh, President Reagan back on in the late 90s, and it's been desultory. Even New York and Los Angeles have been authorized gateways but are only now beginning to show some signs of interest. When was your first trip to Cuba, John? I was first in Cuba in 1998, about uh, six months ahead of the Pope. Uh, no relationship between those, except I was able to see the, the dynamic of the Vatican and uh, Fidel Castro uh, haggling over conditions which would enable the Pope and the uh, you know, approval that is implicit in his visits uh, mm-hmm. to see that evolve. Yeah. And uh, so what keeps you going back time and time again? Haven't you pretty well seen the island and uh, gotten to know some of the people? (laughs) Good question. Uh, Cuba, for me, uh, has a certain magnetism. It is very much like a kaleidoscope. 
that it's ever-changing and evolving. It moves forward and back. It's a land of very subtle political signals. And I, I must confess, Peter, even after some 80 trips, I believe I come back more confused and with fewer answers and more questions after each trip. Well, your introduction to Cuba Rising is uh, quite lyrical, if I may. Cuba is amber-colored rum with a like smoothness. Cuba is rhythmic salsa music so pervasive that hips sway slightly on every street corner. Cuba is tendrils of aromatic cigar smoke curling upwards in the parks where old men under frayed Panama hats gather. Cuba is an architectural wonderment with continuous allusions to the countries that seduced her starting half a thousand years ago. Indeed, being Cuba is as much a mental state as a nation state. How else can I explain how a country that barely registers by most national measuring sticks seems perennially to have a leading role on the world stage? Cuba is six-tenths of one percent of the size of the world's largest country. Her population is fewer than one-tenth of one percent of the world's most populous country, and the size of her military force ranks 74th at two-tenths of one percent of the world's largest, China. Yet Cuba has brought the world to the brink of nuclear extinction. She is a leader among nations in many categories of the health and education of her people. And she has stood toe-to-toe, eyeball-to-eyeball, with the world's greatest superpower for 50 years and not retreated an inch. Let me start where you end there in in that paragraph I just read, and that is that uh, I have argued for a long time that the efforts by the United States to use uh, trade sanctions and uh, other types of sanctions to punish the Castro government has been a colossal failure. And in fact, uh, I argue that our policies have kept Castro and now his brother Raul in power since the Batista revolution. Well, I would say, Peter, you are wise beyond your years. Uh, We are in harmony there. I think uh, after 51 years and failing to uh, generate so-called regime change, it's probably time to consider a, a new policy toward Cuba. Well, and if Fidel Castro to me is a fascinating figure who managed over time to uh, control his people to the extent that he could use the United States as a virtual occupying power, even though we've just got Guantanamo on the tip of the island there. But because of our efforts that were exposed over time uh, to try to assassinate Castro, the famous Bay of Pigs invasion, the uh, blockade that was a result of Soviet missiles being shipped there, and I remember that. I was a schoolboy, and we had drills with duck and cover because we thought Cincinnati, Ohio, was a prime target of the Soviet missiles in Cuba. Um, and, and we have overplayed our hand in a way that strengthened Fidel's. There's no question about that. We have enabled Fidel Castro to blame every shortfall and inconvenience on the uh, big bad wolf to the north. And I can think of no better way to undermine that totalitarian regime than to flood the island with American people and products. And early on in the Obama administration, one of the things that I cheered 
was the uh, intent to relax uh, our sanctions against Cuba. And yet I haven't seen enough follow through. I, I felt the president articulated the need for a sharp change in our policies. And it's not clear to me whether there have been ongoing discussions with uh, Raul Castro and uh, his government, or if uh, Obama was content to kind of uh, state the issue and try to let the Cuban-American activists in Miami uh, uh, percolate with this a little while before moving for uh, significant changes in our relationship. Sure. Well, it's a uh, multifaceted dilemma. On the one hand, uh, the president has more than an abundance on his uh, short list these days. Uh, yet, in reality, there have been some quiet conversations going on at uh, meaningful levels between the two governments. Uh, talks, for example, about emigration from Cuba, which had been suspended under the Bush administration, have resumed. Uh, Governor uh, Bill Richardson of New Mexico was quietly dispatched to Havana last fall hmm. and began to explore some of what I would call confidence-building measures that will necessarily precede a more fruitful dialogue, items such as a postal treaty or an aviation treaty or extradition treaty. Uh, we need to be able to demonstrate that we can sit calmly around a table and have a constructive dialogue, and I believe the first steps in that direction are, are quietly taking place. Well, and the Cubans have must have some wariness uh, about the sincerity of the United States in really updating our policies to recognize the legitimacy of the government there and uh, that their embrace of uh, state socialism is not a threat to the United States. Yes, I'd have to agree. The, the Cubans have been disappointed time and again when various uh, administrations and I would point out that Fidel Castro has outlasted 10 American presidents so yeah. far. Mm -hmm. uh, as the administrations uh, establish certain criteria for a dialogue, and the Cubans would respond, uh, and then the next administration would move the goalposts. And most recently, under the Bush administration, they had to uh, agree to have nobody named Castro in charge, and they had to have free elections, and abandon communism and adopt capitalism and uh, you know the objectives were set so absurdly uh, far from reality that there was no question in Havana that no dialogue was seriously intended yeah well and one of the things that we have done over the years in this uh, attempt to isolate Cuba that you and I agree has backfired is we have pushed that nation into the arms of our putative enemies and today uh, while I have mixed feelings about Hugo Chavez myself, he's uh, roundly demonized in the United States, and uh, yet he is put in a position where, for example, as you point out in the book, uh, Venezuela really uh, filled the gap when the Soviet Union imploded, and the <clears throat> subsidized uh, uh, fuel and agricultural uh, uh, resources that Cuba needs uh, were no longer coming from the Soviet bloc. And so we also see people like uh, troublemakers like Ahmadinejad from Iran 
uh, making occasional trips to Cuba. And all of this, I believe, is driven by uh, us clinging to a policy that really appeases only a handful of Cuban-American activists centered in Miami. Uh, You are unquestionably right. Uh, Cuba is drawing closer daily to Venezuela and Iran and to China. And we are, uh, in effect, forcing their dependence on regimes with which we are not uh, very friendly. Uh, In addition, we're forcing Cuba into the arms of our friends, at least in the economic sphere. The Canadians, for example, have a, a... multi-billion dollar presence in terms of foreign investment in Cuba. And there's no question that the United States uh, appropriately would be making those investments and enjoying those uh, profits. Uh, We have truly tied our arms behind us in a very unequal match. Well, John, with that in mind, um, paint a few word pictures for us, if you will, of daily life in Cuba and how these um, alliances with China, with Canada, with Venezuela, and I guess to some extent Iran, uh, surface in terms of either jobs or products or, uh, you know, brand names that that people see. What what is the impact of these uh, economic and political alliances on the daily life of an average Cuban? Yeah, uh, some of them actually, Peter, are are highly visible, and the Cuban people are are keenly aware of these alliances. Uh, By way of example, last year the uh, Chinese provided to Cuba uh, more than 1,000 mass transit buses, beautiful new vehicles to replace uh, terrible old transport modes that were established during the economic downturn in the 90s when the Soviets left, highly visible every day. Uh, Of course, the Cubans are aware that uh, Venezuela is providing uh, a great majority of their needs for petroleum, uh, and that is in exchange for uh, Cuba providing medical services, uh, I believe some 30,000 physicians to Venezuela. Uh, fortunately, Cuba has a surplus of doctors, and Venezuela has a surplus of oil. So mm-hmm. Some of these are matches made in heaven in the socialist world. Any Iranian carpet stores around? I have <laughs> yet to see those. There's not much retailing in Havana, nor much disposable income. So if, if there isn't much retailing, I mean, where do you get a bag of rice? Where do you buy your bananas? Yeah, interesting dilemma the Cubans face. Um uh, since, I believe, the early 70s, every Cuban on the island has a, a small ration card, which entitles it to uh, what was at one time uh, an adequate amount of uh, basic provisions uh, to last a month. Uh, beans, rice, cooking oil, toothpaste, a little bit of protein, and amusingly in Cuba, each person also gets a bottle of rum. Oh, good. Uh, the dilemma is that uh, while the prices are deeply discounted and affordable, the shelves are usually bare in those ration stores, which forces people out onto the uh, either black market or the open hard currency market and to pay much higher prices for similar items. 
So the economy really is a basket case. Uh, describing it, I would have to say the Cubans are they're joyous, they're proud, and even happy and adoring of Americans, despite these dilemmas, especially in terms of uh, meeting one's daily needs that the United States uh, is blamed for. And John, to what extent is a police state uh, present, palpable, uh, or is it whispered about? For example, you talk about the black market. Uh, Are there crackdowns? Are there informants and goons who people have to worry about if, uh, you know, I'm selling rum out of the back of my, uh, my car? Yes, some of all of the above, Peter. Uh, there is a uh, comprehensive national network where uh, Fidel and the top people are keenly aware of virtually any stirrings of uh, political upheaval. Uh, there is a lively presence of what we would call beat cops, but uh, virtually no military is to be seen. The beat cops really are uh, welcomed because there is a fair amount of Cuban-on-Cuban petty crime. Uh, The economic circumstances create that environment. The military, which one would think of as the visible police force, really has been co-opted into a uh, national labor force. I, I see them picking citrus fruit and running commercial enterprises. So... In the traditional sense of a police state, I would have to say Cuba shows little signs of it. But in the worst traditions of communist states, uh, there is certainly a a thorough national uh, intelligence network which is uh, early and well aware of any political dissent. And there also is a significant population of political prisoners still incarcerated. Well, the number of political prisoners is open to debate. I think the Cubans would claim it's in several dozens, and Amnesty International claims it's in several hundreds, and the uh, conservative expatriates in Miami claim it's in the several thousands. And I would guess it's in the the lower middle range. And I would have to add that um, the Cuban definition of political dissidence is significantly different from ours. You know, in the United States, to uh, be politically dissenting to the point of jeopardizing arrest, you know, really almost involves an act of real disobedience or violence. But in Cuba, there is a law loosely translated uh, as prohibiting, quote, social dangerousness. And that can mean... uh, you know, a lot of things to a lot of people. <laughs> if you simply, uh, you know, express some envy for a relative in uh, Miami who's doing quite well, uh, that can be perceived as undermining the socialist theology of the island. And what about homosexual behavior, open homosexual behavior? Interesting question. That has evolved from at one time being prohibited to, uh, in the early 80s, becoming uh, tolerated. But I'd have to say I think Cuba is not as advanced in terms of tolerance as is widely uh, the case in the United States. No debate over gay marriage so far? (laughs) That has yet to surface. (laughs) Now, um, how Catholic does Cuba remain? Certainly that was the pre-communist heritage there. 
and uh, you mentioned that you were there before the Pope's famous visit. Um, but uh, communism is uh, supposed to be atheistic, and it was never clear to me um, how much Fidel Castro tolerated the practice of Catholicism in Cuba. Yes. Um, interesting uh, dilemma. The church and state have had a, a difficult dynamic uh, in all of recorded history, and Cuba is no exception. Uh, in the early stages of the revolution, the churches were closed and the priests were confined, and to this day, uh, the church is not free to have its own schools or as many priests as it would like or to be uh, really accessing the Internet. Um uh, I once asked a priest who's a friend of mine the same question you posed, is Catholicism the dominant religion on the island? And he said to me, if you ask, 80% of Cubans will profess to be Catholics. But in a very interesting sidelight, there is a religion called Santeria, which stems from the animistic African religious practices that were brought to Cuba with uh, huge numbers of slaves. And when the proselytizers would try to convert them, and they declined, they were, uh, you know, physically assaulted. So the uh, slaves quickly learned to adapt their own beliefs to those of the Catholic Church, and they have a perfect underlay where each saint uh, has the name of an African god or goddess. So St. Francis might be the, the god of the forest, and St. Mary might be the goddess of the sea. Mm-hmm. And so now the slaves were able to go to the masses, and when they would invoke the, the holy uh, trinity and saints, the slaves could say, yes, we believe, we believe, and uh, avoided the beatings and quietly uh, practiced their own religion today. It's rather secret. Uh, there's no houses of worship, but Centuria is certainly the dominant force on the island uh, among religious practices today. That's very interesting. Now, uh, John, recently I've been reading a book that uh, it's, it's called A Terrible Mistake, and I recommend it. It's uh, written by H.P. Alberelli, Jr., and it is the story of our CIA's uh, darkest chapters in its black history. And in particular, it's, it's focused on the death of Frank Olson, who was an American scientist, who uh, was fed LSD without his knowledge, and it took him over the edge. They claim he jumped out a window. Alberelli forensically believes that he was actually killed to shut him up. But in this book, um, we see a lot of activity between the CIA, the mafia underworld from the United States, and gambling casinos and other uh, houses of prostitution, other activities that occurred in Cuba, which was quite a a party island before Castro took over. And Meyer Lansky, uh, Santo Traficante Sr. and Jr., um, uh, Johnny Rosselli, uh, many names that people might have some knowledge of from a kind of American gangster lore, all had connections to Cuba. And, of course, Hemingway lived there for uh, about the last 20 years of his life, so th- th- there's a lot of lore, a lot of, uh, uh, in some cases, nostalgia uh, for those old days. When you visit Cuba in the uh, present day, what, uh, what 
you know, relics or, uh, uh, you know, uh, other other items that recall that era are still present uh, on the island. Yes, in a, in a pleasing way, there are a lot of relics. One cruises through certain parts of town that were built in the 20th century, specifically a suburb named Miramar, and you go past mile after mile of beautiful villas, which are testimony to the amount of wealth on the island, not only from its uh, then natural bounty, but uh, from the mafia. And with the mafia went gambling and drugs and prostitution and corruption. And the Cubans proudly drive you past the Riviera Hotel and point out that's where Meyer Lansky had his biggest casino. And that's the Nacional Hotel, where the... the uh, Scene in the Godfather film of the mafia hierarchy meeting in Havana took place. Yeah. So lots of empty casino buildings now being used to other purposes. There's a lot of uh, great lore and physical evidence, but of course the island has been purged of, uh, if not completely, of of the vices which uh, the mafia brought along and which abruptly were expelled in 1959. But the one exception is there's still a fair amount of local prostitution, isn't there? There is, but it is... Uh, neighbor to neighbor? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, in a wonderfully Cuban way, it has been taken off the streets and appears to be tolerated in the clubs which are frequented by tourists. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I am skeptical that Cuba is a... Uh, a destination for what is called sex tourism, uh, but there's no question the economic conditions have, uh, you know, induced a lot of uh, young women into that profession, if only temporarily. Now, and, for for example, you recite uh, an evening when you went to a club uh, to see Los Van Van, and that uh, they finally came on stage at 4 a.m., but you had left by then. That's right. So in the three hours that you were working on one or more mojitos, uh, how many ladies offered their services? <laughs> well, I'd have to say it is a, uh, there's a plethora of spandex in Havana, uh-huh. uh, without getting down to specific statistics. <laughs> <laughs> well, but without embarrassing you, is it fairly common that you would be approached uh, as a single man by a woman who uh, wants to spend a little time with you? Yeah, it is uh, common, but one really has to seek out those specific venues, which for the most part are salsa clubs for uh, foreign visitors, that if you're walking down the street, um, at least in the last 10 to 12 years, uh, prostitution is not visible. In fact, that was one of the conditions of the Pope's visit. Fidel swept the streets of the working gals, sent them off to be re-educated, and now this tacit understanding out of sight, out of harm's way, uh, is remains in place. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to music, the culture also produces a lot of art. And uh, you talked about an art crawl, literally, um, where you had to crawl from, <laughs> to get from one, I guess, one gallery to the next. Uh, talk a little bit about the artistic community and have they moved beyond a kind of Soviet-style uh, art that celebrates the the state and the you know the official messages of the government. Art is one of the real attractions of Cuba, and not only to those who are collectors, uh, 
It has a legacy, of course, that goes back uh, all the way to the Spanish colonial era. Mercifully, it was not interrupted, but briefly, by the revolution. There was not an era where artists were required to go out and paint uh, beaming tractor drivers. Uh, so there's a diverse array of techniques and prices there. I, I was in Havana uh, two days ago with a person who spent $80,000 to purchase a, a masterful work by a museum-quality artist. Really? Yeah. Well, $80,000 will keep that artist uh, in 57 Chevys for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a dilemma. There is not a lot of ways for uh, artists to enjoy their affluence. Uh, ironically, they'll still be on the government payroll at $20 a month, even if they're raking in 100000 a month from selling their artworks. Now, hmm. they will have to pay a bit of tax on it. And they may well be assigned a nicer home or permitted to buy a car. The government has ways of soaking up those excess uh, chunks of foreign currency. Indeed. Now, is it still kind of a, a parade of vintage cars, not all shined and buffed and running in top uh, condition, but the uh, fleet of automobiles there is uh, pretty dated, isn't it? It is one of the marvels of Cuba. One can only uh, imagine if you see it yourself. The, the automobile fleet was frozen at the time of the revolution, so no more imported cars for private citizens. How they keep 60-, 70-year-old Packards and DeSotos in running order is quite a bafflement to me. Now, one does see on the streets more modern cars, uh, of course, some were brought in during the Soviet era. You can see the, the Moskvas and the Ladvas easily recognizable because usually someone's pushing them. <laughs> uh, but you see more modern cars also because they are permitted to be owned by Western business people, by diplomats, and, of course, by the government itself, which needs modern functional transportation. Yeah. But certainly uh, the vintage American cars are a common sight and a constant source of amusement to me. Well, you, you reminded me, uh, I, I was in uh, the Czech Republic shortly after the, the Velvet Revolution, <clears throat> and the running joke, <clears throat> pardon me, was that uh, if you wanted to double the value of your Škoda, you went to the gas station and filled up the tank. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, uh, that sums it up for sure. And how these mechanics keep uh, these ancient cars rolling is uh, something that I will never understand. I mean, are there masters at machine tooling? Because you would think that, uh, you know, when the transmission goes, the only way, you don't, you don't have a junkyard where you can go and find a Packard transmission. So I would imagine you have to rebuild these things. Yeah, they, uh, of course, engines and uh, mechanics were a lot simpler back then. There's a lot of uh, improv, a lot of uh, hand machining, and of course they cannibalize some things. Uh, I know one fellow in Havana who uh, ranges over the countryside in search of old abandoned uh, Harley-Davidsons, mm -hmm. brings back these heaps of junk, and out of every three he finds, he can cobble together uh, a functional new motorcycle. Yeah. So it's a constant challenge. 
Now, John, I purposely didn't delve into Guantanamo at the beginning because that's not the focus of your book, and in many ways it's uh, so anomalous. But uh, that is the part of Cuba that most Americans have knowledge of. And I'm just curious how Cubans relate to this American outpost. And as you point out in the book, uh, we have a, uh, a lease on the, uh, the, the property there. And we're supposed to pay $4,000 a year. And apparently we send a check every year, but the Cubans have never cashed them. Um, but what is the knowledge of what's going on at Guantanamo? And has the, uh, the reported uh, use of torture and the lengthy detention without trial of these individuals, how has it affected the perception of the United States on the part of uh, an average Cuban, if such exists? Now, the Cubans are fundamentally very fond of Americans. Uh, they are quick to point out they were Americans before we were. Uh, and they will get past this, this weird half-century uh, blockade. But they, understandably, are resentful of having a foreign military base on their soil. And uh, no, no less than you would be in, if you were still in Cincinnati and the Cubans had a military base up in Columbus. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, we would give them northern Kentucky. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if they'd take it, but it's a kind <laughs> offer. <laughs> uh, initially, Fidel was sympathetic to... Uh, using Guantanamo for uh, you know, tending to the terrorists. But then as sentiment changed both in the United States and abroad, it changed in Cuba. And Fidel, for many years, lambasted the United States for the torture and other misdeeds and uh, has not overlooked the fact that we kind of forgot to give the uh, base back after the expiration of the 99-year lease. So Cubans have a splendid ability to have a personal engagement and friendship with an American mm -hmm. and somehow divorce that from political issues such as Guantanamo and the blockade. But believe me, they're well-informed uh, and very sensitive about any area in which they feel they're not being treated with respect or as sovereign equals. Mm-hmm. And is there any um, government-approved movement to try to protest our presence at Guantanamo and provide a kind of people power or populist action uh, to provoke uh, some sort of a confrontation and, and get the United States to abandon it? Uh, there have been some desultory efforts uh, when Fidel was more active, uh, which he has not been really since. Uh, he became ill in 2006, you know, he, he would stir up these uh, million-man rallies uh, with a lot of rhetorical uh, claims and allegations. And I'd have to say that era of politically charging the, the Cuban population has subsided somewhat as Raul has come in to take over the presidency. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a daily source of irritation, you would say. It's something that they occasionally uh, focus on? Yeah, it's a constant low-level irritation, but on their list of priorities, of course, an end to the economic blockade, 
uh, an end to the ban on U.S. US tourism, uh, an end to the United States trying to isolate them from participating in international organizations. They have a long wish list, and Guantanamo is on it, but not at the top. Mm-hmm. And what, if, what is your view of the shift under Raul Castro? Uh, certainly he has liberalized some of the economic policies and uh, allowed certain internal markets to develop. Um, but is he any different of a dictator than his brother was? He's a very different personality, uh, Peter. He's, he's much more of a, a low-key, pragmatic sort of fellow. Uh, he has the charisma of a pop-up toaster, so he's not inclined to be out there giving long speeches and rabble-rousing. Uh, he has spent his entire life uh, heading the Cuban military forces, which is a organizational uh, project, and he's a, a good bureaucrat. But who uh, would want to follow in the footsteps of uh, a legendary figure like Fidel Castro? Mm-hmm. So he has come forth with some more progressive uh, steps. Uh, as you suggested, he's turned over some government land back to farmers. He has significantly uh, recently indicated that uh, equality among Cubans does not necessarily mean identical salaries. Uh, But when he takes too large a step, keep in mind Fidel still has people he's put into power for half a century. Uh, Raul quietly gets spanked and in some cases has had to back off some of the reforms, which he clearly would like to see in place. Mm -hmm. And who does Raul answer to? (laughs) Well, Fidel looms large on Cuba's stage and and will until he takes his last breath. Uh, Officially, he is elected uh, as the president of a 31-person council of ministers, almost a parliamentary system. And uh, to some degree, he reports to them, but I think the relationship is more the reverse. And uh, last fall, he actually cleaned house and managed to displace uh, several very powerful uh, ministerial-level appointees who were put there by Fidel. Mm -hmm. So he's flexing his muscles, but there are clear limitations. And John, are there any um, direct or indirect efforts by major uh, exiles, and I'm, I'm thinking of the Fon Yule brothers who control sugar in uh, Florida and, in fact, uh, dominate the market in the United States. Uh, one of them writes checks to Democrats. The other brother writes them to Republicans. And famously, Monica Lewinsky testified that she was under the desk um, entertaining the president when he took a call from one of the Fon Yule brothers who was concerned about Al Gore's uh, ecological escapades in the Everglades. Right. Um, and uh, Bacardi is still uh, certainly a very powerful company uh, in the southeast region of the United States. Have they made any eth- efforts, either directly or through proxies, to try to position themselves to jockey uh, for a time when the sanctions are lifted and uh, some sort of normal economic relations might resume? 
To my knowledge, uh, Peter, there has been some quiet discussion of this, but those who were forced off the island, such as the Bacardis and the tobacco and sugar barons, uh, and those who have fled voluntarily, uh, are not likely to be welcomed back. Now, the question remains, and you raise a very uh, good point here, how will the Cuban government be able to resist perhaps the Bacardis or even the Starbucks who come ashore waving million-dollar bills uh, in a country where uh, one-dollar bills are scarce? Mm -hmm. uh, I believe there will be a lot of resistance to those who have left being welcomed back, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the key issue in Cuba today is the standard of living. And if that economy does not get traction soon, uh, serious consideration will have to be given to those who have experience and heritage on the island. Mm -hmm. Have you ever managed to visit um, the Isla de Pinos, the Isle of Pines? Yes, I have. Tell me what you saw there. I know there's a, there is a prison there that uh, is kind of the equivalent of Alcatraz at least uh, in, as the legend goes. And this is curious, but one of my uh, uh, neighbors when I grew up in Cincinnati was an elderly guy. He was an heir to a beer fortune, and he claimed to have owned a villa on the Isle of Pines that was nationalized uh, in, in about 1960, and he was bitterly anti-communist, and uh, that was about the extent of what I knew about his story. Yeah, the island is a very large one. In fact, it's one of the uh, 14 provinces that comprise Cuba. Uh, it's largely agricultural and uh, fairly barren. There are some plantations uh, there, and I'm sure there are uh, mementos of the good old days where uh, it was an attractive spot for Cuban honeymooners, and there are a few resorts. The uh, attraction to me uh, was some... Um, Superb scuba diving with oh. uh, marvelous reefs that are not often dived. Uh-huh. Now, that's pretty cool. I'm a diver myself, and I got certified near you there in Monterey Bay, where I took a pledge never to dive in cold water again. Ah, <laughs> uh, I've taken the same pledge, but in <laughs> Cuba, the water is bathtub warm and gin clear, and I encourage you to consider diving there when, of course, that would be legal. I'd love to. Fascinating. <laughs> Well, John, uh, in closing here, I'd like you to take a moment or two and describe the Cuban people, because that's central to your book, uh, Cuba Rising. You really have an affinity for who they are and the, uh, I don't know, the attributes that they display, uh, even to uh, a foreign visitor. Well, thank you, because you're absolutely right. I think the people of Cuba are unquestionably, it's greatest asset. The island is not abundantly endowed with, endowed with natural resources. It has been stricken economically. You know, first Spain was tossed out, and then we were tossed out, and then the Soviets bailed. So in terms of its infrastructure and economy, it's taken, in effect, you know, three great depressions in, within a, a century. Uh, the people are resilient. They are physically handsome. There is uh, an absence of racial issues on the island. 
how they can be so full of joy and energy on the meager uh, salaries and sustenance they have uh, is remarkable to me. But they have uh, a real zest for life and uh, a true love for family, which extends beyond their immediate relatives. Uh, in effect, they consider the, the entire island to be a, a type of a family relationship. They are healthy, more so than us. Their life expectancy is longer. Their infant mortality is lower. They have more doctors per capita. So in terms of uh, social benefits, they're in reasonably good shape. Uh, the flip side of that coin is that if the government has overspent on the social safety net, there isn't enough left to provide adequate jobs or wages. So you have a terrible, what I call, underemployment. My favorite bartender in Havana uh, was a jet pilot. My favorite taxi driver uh, is a neurosurgeon. Mm. Uh, my favorite humidor maker uh, quit practicing law because he could make more money drafting boxes for cigars. Wow. So there are some inherent uh, man-made tragedies, uh, avoidable dilemmas from which the Cuban people can emerge. And I'm, I'm firmly convinced that uh, common sense and logic will, will drive us back to a, a healthy relationship. I'd like to think that can come in the, along with the Obama administration. But the Cuban people are uh, chronically optimistic and uh, a, a joy to be with, which is one of the uh, key elements that draws me back to the island. And do cohibas grow on trees down there? <laughs> Small trees called uh, tobacco plants. <laughs> <laughs> and are you a cigar lover? I love them in Havana and managed to uh, avoid it while I'm in the States. Uh -huh. Of course, it would be a violation of the law to bring any back. John Cho, uh, how did you connect with Michael Hemp, and what are the origins of uh, the publishing of this book? Well, Michael Hemp is a, a dear friend almost since the day I landed in Carmel Valley. Uh, he's an accomplished author, and I must say his continuous uh, prodding and support was a key element in this book emerging from my alleged brain. And uh, he's a terrific guy, both on the creative side and the uh, marketing side, and I'm, I'm glad if he's a mutual friend. Yeah, he's been a good supporter of the Peter B. Collins Show, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to say that. And I'm glad that uh, he helped you get the book published. Tell us where people can buy it, Cuba Rising, An American Insider's Perspective. Yeah, it uh, was only published a couple months ago. It is available on uh, Amazon. Um, one would just type in the name of the book, Cuba Rising. It's available on uh, Barnes & Noble. I uh, believe the same way to track it down, name of the book and possibly my name, uh, S-H-O-W-E. Mm -hmm. And it will be going into borders and uh, into bookstores uh, as the time and logistics uh, allow. All right. Well, I wish you the best, and it's been delightful to talk with you today, and uh, you've given me an itch. I really want to go to Cuba, so I'm going to work on that. Okay, Peter, thank you so much for the opportunity. I enjoy chatting about Cuba, and your very insightful questions made it a lot of fun. Well, I enjoyed it, too. Jonathan Show with an E on the end, Cuba Rising. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me an email 
en español. Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling.